So for the next four Sundays, and this Sunday, next Sunday, and then the two Sundays after uh, September uh, family camp, we're going to talk about what the Christian Missionary Alliance calls the fourfold gospel. We're going to talk about the banners. Christ our Savior, Christ our Sanctifier, and then the ones at the back. I don't know if you notice them when you're leaving. You're probably busy visiting, but Christ our Healer and Christ our, our coming King. So the next four times I'm here, we're going to talk about the significance of um, this theme. And, and it's not like it's four different themes. It's all sort of one theme. Um, A.B. Simpson is the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, and uh, back in the late uh, 19th century, uh, this was a summary of what the church, both in, in the Northeast U.S., where Simpson was located in New York City, and around the world, he believed, needed to hear. And it's kind of like the revival theme, the renewal theme Pat was talking about. It's kind of like the encounter, the fresh encounter that, uh, that Graham was talking about, that Simpson just felt something was needed. Things were flat. People were just kind of showing up at church. So there wasn't any life. There didn't seem to be any energy. It was kind of standard operating procedure. It was more going to church because you had to go to church than because you wanted to go to church. It was doing things for God because you could do things for God, not necessarily that you wanted to do things for God. And so it was, there was that sort of, as usually there is in any kind of renewal movement, right? There's that sense of, we're just kind of going through the motions. We need, we need some energy, or a 21st century word. We need a robust faith. We need uh, an experiential, an encounter, an engagement kind of experience um, beyond the ritual, beyond the ceremony, beyond just escaping hell to get to heaven. Simpson believed that these were sort of four pillars or four corners of the one foundation. The foundation is Jesus. And, and Edwin's team has done a good job of kind of pointing us to Jesus. Lord, I need you. Every hour, not just occasionally, not just when things get bad, every hour, I need you. And so the song, and that's sort of Simpson's theme was, was it, it's all about Jesus. And so these, these four corners, if you will, are all part of the foundation. It's the one foundation with four different aspects, four different uh, dimensions to this uh, focus, focus on Jesus. And so it, it's understanding, it's encountering Jesus in the here and now. It's about surrender. Or the word we use in the Alliance these days is the word transformation. And transformation has both that now and then kind of idea to it, right? Transformation, Romans chapter 12, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's a now kind of thing. That there would be this life, this energy, this sense of the living presence of God in your life that just kind of energizes you. But then there's also the future thing. For when we see him, First John chapter 3 says, we shall be like him. So this deeper understanding of Jesus, a deeper encounter, a deeper connection in every area of our lives and in every area of our church's lives. That's what it means for Christ to be our Savior. Now in the first century, Savior was a fairly common word. Uh, Savior was used to describe things like when a, when a, a city 
uh, a civic official kind of maybe saved the city in terms of there was a famine or there was an earthquake, and, and usually the civic leaders had all the money, and so maybe some civic leader uh, helped with the repairs and helped with the food or whatever. These people would be known as being a savior. The Caesars were known as saviors. Pompey was known as the savior and founder of the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar was known as the savior of the world. And Augustus, who was the emperor when Jesus was born, was known as the savior of humanity. And so these emperors, as saviors, would bring safety, health, and wealth. The downside was that it only happened for Roman citizens. If you weren't a Roman citizen, then tough toenails, folks. <laughs> it, was, um, it was the elite that benefited from these emperors. And so it's a very common first century word that both, both Jewish people in the first century and Greek-speaking Roman people in the first century, Latin people-speaking people in the first century, would have understood the idea of savior. Okay, because they, they saw it in the emperors and, and these sort of political leaders who everybody looked to to help and bring, as I said, safety or wealth or uh, material uh, possessions, security, and so on. Not unlike today, that's still the same, isn't it? There's nations all around the world where they look to their leader to be the one who's going to be their savior. When it comes to theological terminology, my antenna are always kind of looking for the use of what I would say theological words or biblical words in sort of the common things of life. Um, when we were in, in Disney World back in, this, in March with our, our grandsons and we were, uh, um, I forget what land we were in, uh, we were in some land. Anyway, my, my favorite Nemo character is Crush. Because Crush uses a religious word. Now, he uses it in his own way. Anybody know what Crush's religious word is that he uses? Righteous. Good. So, because sometimes I think, we think, well, these, these religious terms are so far removed from our vocabulary today that people just won't understand. Now, he's using it in a different way. Cool dude that he is, he's using it in a different way. But he's using the word Righteous. See, what would happen in the New Testament is um, the Gospels, for example, the Gospel, the idea of a Gospel itself, good news, is something, that, that was a common word that we used, say, for example, uh, after Augustus became emperor, his birth was hailed as good news for the world. And so, that was a very common word that was used, and now the word good news is attached to Jesus. So there has to be some reconfiguring, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke... And John aren't afraid to attach that to Jesus being good news. You gotta redefine it, you gotta re-explain it, but nonetheless, that they're not creating new terms, they're working with the terms that were there and, and pointing people to what they meant, that meant in terms of who Jesus was. Paul uses a, a, a marketplace term. He uses the word redemption. That's from the slave market. That's what happens if you've seen the movie Gladiator. That's what happens when you buy a slave. You're redeeming the slave. Now, you might be putting into another kind of slavery, but you're redeeming the slave. And so Paul uses the word redemption. He doesn't, he doesn't create a new word. He just takes the word that's there 
and he um, re-explains re it. He redefines it. So in some ways, you can say the emperors were kind of like the superheroes of the day. Pompey, Caesar, Julius Caesar, or Augustus were sort of like the superheroes of the day. Now, there's a lot of superheroes today. There's all kinds of superheroes today. Um, you almost lose track of them. Now, my, my favorite superheroes, my personal favorites, have always been Batman and Superman. First it was Superman, back when I was a kid, and then it became Batman. But in recent days, I've had to kind of change my, my priorities and my preferences. This is my grandson before they moved to Meadow Lake up in Fort Capel back in June. He decided he wanted to cut the lawn in his Spider-Man suit. And um, actually, when they were, we had the boys for a week, and actually Hayden started out, they were going to visit friends in Fort Capel. He put his Spider-Man suit on when they left the house uh, to drive to Fort Capel. But uh, so Spider-Man is now in my uh, triumvirate of superheroes. I'm not an Avengers guy. I haven't quite got into the Avengers, but it's interesting. The last two Avengers movies, Infinity War and Endgame, the statistics are phenomenal. Almost three quarters of a billion dollars to make these two movies. Three quarters of a billion dollars. Most movies are kind of in the 100 million, 200 million range. Three quarters of a billion dollars to make these two movies. One came out in 2018, one early this year in 2019. And so far, they've grossed almost $5 billion. So a lot of people have watched these movies. Now, there's something interesting happens in Infinity War. At the very start of Infinity War, as, as the movie opens, the, the commander of the bad guy's forces, the commander of the bad guy's forces is, is walking through the debris and the carnage. And listen to what he says. As he's walking through the carnage, if anybody is still conscious or alive, he is saying this, Hear me and rejoice. You have had the privilege of being saved by the great Titan. You may think this is suffering. No, it is salvation. That just catch, catches my attention because all of a sudden, here's however many people spend $5 billion on going to movies. However many millions of people have watched these last two Avengers. The movie opens with this idea of salvation and being saved. In fact, later on in the movie, the bad guy, Thanos, says to Gamora a phrase that has actually become named and, and attached to all kinds of other uh, themes around. But Thanos says this to Gamora. He says that her death is a small price to pay for salvation. I just... I'm not endorsing the Avengers. I'm, I'm just saying it's interesting that our, our gospel terminology is right there in front of us sometimes. And sometimes, like the New Testament does, we've just got to turn it a little bit. We're going to spend some time this week and next, and then later on, uh, end of September, into October, in the book of Hebrews. So we're going to go to Hebrews this morning. If you're working with your uh, Bible that's in the pew in front of you, turn to page 1107. Page 1107. The letter to the Hebrews. Why? Well, because the letter to the Hebrews is all about Jesus. The letter to the Hebrews has the phrase that talks about our so great a salvation. So since we're talking about Jesus, our Savior, Christ, our Savior this morning, we're going to 
look at some verses in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, interesting. The more I sort of read through, read through, read through Hebrews, if I, and I, if I were to have a place, where would I put the book of Hebrews in the Bible? I would plunk it right between the Old Testament, Malachi, and right before Matthew. Because it's a great transition book from the Old Testament as it talks about the priests and the sacrifices, as it talks about the promised land, and we just did some of that with Joshua and the rest in the promised land. Hebrews is all about this transition from the Old Testament themes and promises to Jesus. I know usually when it comes to somebody becomes a, a follower of Jesus, we would say read the Gospel of Mark or maybe read the Gospel of John. If we only knew the Old Testament as well as we should know the Old Testament, Hebrews is a great place to start because it takes the old, transitions it, focuses on Jesus, points to Jesus, and then away you go. And in some ways, reading the book of Hebrews before we read the Gospels might give us a better understanding of sort of the background from the Old Testament. But as I said, it's hard. It's, hard. Some, it's just hard for us to grasp the Old Testament sometimes. But nonetheless... It's almost like this is an introduction to the Gospels. A terrific bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 1, page 1107. Christ our Savior. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. That's the first thing he tells us about Jesus. This is his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So this, this startup is it, it's not about what Jesus has done. That comes later. It's about who Jesus is. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. He is the creator, he is the owner, he is the ruler of everything. Why do I need to be a follower of Jesus? Not just because of what he's going to do for me, because of who he is. We sometimes get so caught up in the end game, if you will, that we forget who it is who's running the game. Who he is. He is the radiance of God's glory. John chapter 1 kind of picks up that same theme, right? Um, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. He is our... He is our only way to understand who God is and what God is like. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. He is, he is at work. Everything, everything happens because Jesus is at work. I talked about threads that God weaves in our lives. I, I've quoted this verse before, John chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, My Father is always at work, and so am I. 
So I think my responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to just be paying attention. What's God doing? So that's why I asked you, what, what kind of things came together when um, Sheila spoke, or when Terry spoke, or when uh, Paul spoke, or when John spoke? What, what things connected for you? Because I'm, Jesus is in charge of all the things that happen in the world. Now, I know that creates some things we don't understand. But there are things he's doing in our lives... And I think it's up to me to pay attention. Later on in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer is going to say, um, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Chapter 2 is, uh, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Chapter 12, you know a little better. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Well, because he's sustaining all things by his powerful word. It may not seem like it, but God is at work. Jesus is at work. So that's, that's who Jesus is. And then he talks, starts to talk about what Jesus has done. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So now it's back to who he is. A little bit on what he's done, purification for sins, and then it's back to who he is. He is at the right hand of God. He has given all authority. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's seated at the right hand of God. And then... What happens is, the, the, the letter to the Hebrews then goes into things where Jesus is better, that Jesus is superior to the angels. Because in the time between the ending of the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus, um, the rabbis and the Jewish leaders, there was a, a lot going on about angels. There was a lot about angels. I know some of you might think the 80s and the New Age movement was sort of a, a big time with angels. Was There was lots of stuff going on. Just before Jesus was born, just before Jesus came into the world um, for angels and for help, one of the reasons for that was because God wasn't sending any more prophets. So then Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is superior to the angels. Then Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to the priests in the, in the Old Testament uh, uh, system. Jesus is superior to the tabernacle. He is a better hope. There are better promises. There's a better covenant. There's a better sacrifice. There's a better country. It's kind of like the transfiguration. When Jesus is on the mountain, goes up the mountain of transfiguration, he takes Peter, James, and Jonathan, and they go up the top of the mountain, and Moses and Elijah appear, and Jesus is transfigured. His, his, his appearance changes before them, this, this bright radiance before them. And then the voice from heaven comes and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's kind of like the gospel, or the, the letter to the Hebrews just kind of flushes that all out and stretch, stretches that all out. Because the problem, for the, the re, one of the reasons Hebrews is written is because they weren't listening. They weren't paying attention. They had con, kind of fallen into that needing renewal, needing a new encounter, needing a fresh experience of God sort of phase. Things were flat. In fact, not only were things flat, some of them were thinking of saying, ah, we're done, we're out of here. This is, this is not what we signed up for. This is my beloved son, listen to him. He is better than anything else we may be tempted to rely on. Jesus is better than anything else they may be tempted to rely on. So some of them are going to go back to the old way of worship. They're going to go back to their old Jewish ceremonies and rituals because that's what they know. 
If you have somebody who's dealing with an addiction, why would they relapse? Well, they relapse because it's what they're familiar with. It's, it's what they know. Even though it might kill them. They know. They, they know the routine. They know the drill. They know how it works. And so, so these followers of Jesus were, were tempted to go back. And so the book of Hebrews contains five significant warnings about what happens if you decide to go back. And we'll talk about those. But Jesus is better, better than anything else we may be tempted to rely on. Never mind the first century. What, what, what do we rely on in the 21st century? What things, do we, what things do you and I rely on in the 21st century? I rely on my credit cards, right? Even if my bank account's zero, I'm going to use my credit cards if I want to buy something. What else do we rely on? Come on. What else? What other things do we rely on? Eh? Sorry? Computers? Yeah. Good. Good. If you want to figure something out, Google it, right? Yeah, okay. Our car? Sorry? Yeah, for sure. Gotta have a car. Gotta have a car. And if, if my car breaks down, I gotta get another one. I mean, what are, what are the kind of, so material things, what are the kind of things do we rely on? Other people? Friends? Family? Sure. Yeah. Do we rely on the government? <laughs> do you pay taxes? Sorry. <laughs> Um, right? On our, on ourselves? For sure. Thanks, Esther. Um, one of the songs caught me on that very, one of the ending of one of the songs we sang caught me on that ending. Um, yeah, we rely on ourselves. So, so, so in, in this background, and as, as the hardship and the suffering and, is coming on, on these believers that are being addressed here in the first century, the apostles come along and saying, Jesus is better than anything else we may be tempted to rely on. Let, so let, let's look at a couple passages. Chapter 7. Turn over a couple pages. Page 1111. 11. Turn to chapter 7. Verse 23. Hebrews 7. Verse 23. So I'm just going to pick a couple. There's some, there's some phrases in the book of Hebrews that just kind of pop. That just kind of sort of summarize it all. But I want us to get the whole context where that phrase is. So the Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, those statements about who Jesus is and the significance of him, greater than Julius Caesar, greater than Pompey, greater than Augustus Caesar. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. So he's talking about priests and... Melchizedek, the priest from the Old Testament, which is a whole other story. But look at verse 22. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, how do we know Jesus lives forever? The resurrection. We sang about that this morning. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, 
Therefore, he is able to, and I love the King James Version, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to pray for us, but not just pray for us. It's this idea of an advocate, someone who's going to stand up for me, somebody who's, who's going to go to the wall for me, someone who's going to be there for me no matter what. First John chapter 1. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Therefore, he is able to save completely. That's, that's who Christ our Savior is. He's able to save completely, totally, ultimately, fully, those who come to God through him, because he, is all, he always lives to intercede for them. What's Jesus' job at the right hand of God? Intercede for me, intercede for you. Good news. Such a high priest truly meets our need. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as a high priest men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. Who do you want to go to the wall for you? Someone like you or someone like Jesus? Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll pick it up at verse 24. Talking about the tabernacle, the place of access to God, the place of being in the presence of God, which in the Old Testament was limited. You were in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. There's that... There's that advocacy thing. There's that intercession thing. There's that who represents me before God. Not just when I sin, not just when I, I'm selfish, not just when my pride gets the best of me, but all the time. Now to appear for us. There's another way to read it. Now to appear for us as a body. Now to appear for us as a body. That when we talked about this, right? Don't always personalize every verse of the because more often than not, it's about the corporate body, not the individuals. He appears for us in the God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. That's how much better Jesus is. It's his own blood. Once and for all. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has appeared once for all. Once for all time. Once for all people. At the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. 
And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Because things don't always go as, as we think they should. So there's this idea of waiting. Waiting is a big part of faith. The idea of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, when we get to it, a lot of it has to do with waiting. And waiting doesn't mean I had to take Hayden to the doctor's office for a follow-up ear appointment this past week. At one point, I was going to have all three grandsons with me, but fortunately, we ended up changing Bennett's time with us, and so it was just me and two grandsons. I wasn't quite sure how I was going to have three in the waiting room. But... When we think of waiting, I think we think of a waiting room, like kind of twiddling our thumbs, play with our phones, whatever, right? We're just sitting there doing nothing. Waiting, waiting in the Bible is active waiting. It's not like we're sitting there doing nothing, waiting for God to do something. We are working at being like Jesus, as we sang this morning, when we're waiting. It's not a passive waiting, it's an active waiting. To bring salvation to those who are waiting in faith, with faith, by faith, for him. One more reference, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Just go over the page. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And again, there's the priesthood idea. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So there's the blending, right? From this week in the next week, our sanctifier, the one who makes us holy. There's the connection between Christ our Savior and Christ our sanctifier. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever us, followers of Jesus, who are being made holy. So there's this, obviously, this underlying idea, the key idea is sacrifice, right? Jesus sacrificed for us and what that gains for us. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. Reconciliation with God. Reconciliation with our Creator. Reconciliation with the One who gave us life and breath, from whom our sin and our rebellion and our pride has separated us. It gives us reconciliation. We gain forgiveness. It puts us in the presence of God. We have access. We have an advocate. We find, as it says elsewhere, grace to help in time of need. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can experience the embrace of God. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can experience the loving arms of God. Our vision statement begins by saying what? To reveal and embrace God. How is that possible? It's only possible because of Jesus' sacrifice. To experience the embrace of God. Experiencing the embrace of God won't always be emotional. But sometimes it has to be emotional. It has to be something you feel, something you sense, something that stirs you up. And something comes out of you as an expression of that experience of the embrace of God. And that's all possible only because Jesus Christ 
is our Savior. Now, I've, I've talked about the, the limitations that the, the readers were having and, and the problems they were having and the, the sort of turning back and turning away. But you've got to know that they started out really well. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. You, we're in chapter 10. Just go a little further on in chapter 10. Notice how they started. Notice how they started. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. <laughs> Boy, they become a follower of Jesus and right away there's conflict. Right away there's hardship. I suspect most of us, if we came to Christ in the last 40 years, usually had some concept that Jesus is going to make everything right and he's going to fix everything and life's going to get better. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light. I think that's almost the, having received the light is almost a phrase out of one of the songs we sang. When you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Whoa. Your car. Your computer. <laughs> because you know, knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. So don't be too hard. Don't be too hard on, on these people that the apostles writing to because they started out really well. It was interesting when I had all three boys in the car a couple times last week. The two seven-year-olds are both going into grade two. So they're learning to read. So they want to read everything, right? They just, every sign we drive by, you know, um, they want, they're trying to read the sign. And they're trying to read what it says on the, the truck or the cube truck beside us. And they're just trying to read it. And like boys, it's kind of a competition kind of thing, right? Who's going to get, get it first or who's going to figure it out first? But it's, I, I forgot what that's like, right? That enthusiasm that they, they want to read, they want to read, they want to read. When you first came to Christ, when you first became a follower of Jesus, when you had that first experience, maybe at camp, where you felt the embrace of God, isn't it possible that you just wanted to soak up as much scripture and as much truth about Jesus as you could, and so you read, and you read, and you read? Just like my two grandsons who are going into grade two, they want to read, they want to read, they want to read. And what happens by the time they get to high school, university, the last thing they want to do is read, right? Is that like us? Is that, are, are we like that? Are we inclined? Go back. Go back to those early days and compare those early days to now. Is the Word of God, is the Word of God that much shaping your life as it did back then? Because you could say, these guys are us, right? They started out great. In spite of all the hardship, in spite of all the difficulties they faced. And the apostle is going to say a little later in chapter 12, he's going to say, yeah, but you haven't suffered yet to the point of shedding blood. So what's the comfort? Go back to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Something about our Savior that they needed to know Something about our Savior that we need to know. 
During the days, Hebrews 5, 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Son though he was, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Suffering, hardship, and, and I, I think that there's more to hardship than just sort of religious persecution. I think it's just the hardship of life. I think it's just the reality of living in a fallen world and the things we come up against and the reality of sickness and the reality of death and the reality of disease, the reality of, of people mistreating other people. It's not just religious persecution we're talking about. It's just hardship of life in a fallen world. He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. What a great phrase. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He is our life. He is our breath. He is better than anything else we may be tempted to rely on. And then back to some more familiar verses in chapter 2. Chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Again, back to what Jesus has done, right? Those who were free, those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. I was watching a, a news program last week, and they were interviewing the two producers of uh, something that's coming out on, I think it's HBO. Um, it's called Alternate Endings, Six New Ways to Die in America. I don't know what it's about. It was interesting hearing the producers say, yeah, people are still, it was, it was just a quote, right? Yeah, people are still afraid of death. People are still afraid of death. I mean, I always thought that, but I need to hear from somebody else who's studied it to, to hear, especially from a non-Christian perspective. Yeah, people are still afraid of death. People are still afraid of death. For sure it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, that us. That's us. For this reason, he was made like his brothers and sisters in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered, suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. There's the advocacy. There's the alongside of. There's the going to the wall with us. Is there hardship in Esteban? Is there hardship... Suffering in Esteban? Are people in Esteban afraid of death? Or are people in Esteban more afraid of the economy? Or are people in Esteban more afraid of losing their job? Or are people in Esteban more afraid of losing their home? What are people in Esteban afraid of? Christ, our Savior. Not just our Savior, but the Savior of the world. We say, everyone needs compassion. People in Estevan 
need compassion. And if there's anything underlying the concept of a savior, it's the idea of grace and compassion and mercy. In fact, the next line goes on to say the kindness of a savior. You see, the greatness of Jesus gives two things. The greatness of Jesus gives us great confidence. And the greatness of Jesus also gives us great responsibility. And I know I sound like Spider-Man. The greatness of Jesus gives us great confidence, and with great confidence comes great responsibility. Let's put it that way. Because <laughs> it's not about the power. It's not about the power. <clears throat> the idea of Hebrews is to instill confidence in the followers of Jesus. And the challenge is to live with that tension of great confidence and great responsibility. Great confidence doesn't mean we puff ourselves up and walk around as if we know it all, we're holier than anybody else, or we're on some you know, tight relationship with Jesus that nobody else is. Great confidence and great responsibility is only connected by great humility. Great humility. Why? Well, because Christ our Savior, I think, points to one thing, and we've already alluded, it sounds like you already heard about it a couple weeks ago. Forgiveness. The importance of forgiveness. I came across a quote from some old notes I had from, from John and Eloise Bergen. I think I, I used it in a sermon back around 2007 or something like that. Um, not long after they had uh, had their experience in Kenya. Here's the quote, and I close with this. It's the people you love who can hurt you the most. It's years of learning how to find healing from those hurts that enabled us to forgive our attackers. And somebody already, Pat, I think, talked about the incredible forgiveness they demonstrated to their attackers. You know, in the news, in the news, when somebody says about some, you know, there's been some assault or something, and, and the person says, "I forgive them," uh, people just don't know what to do with that. They, they think Christians are weird for saying that. That's the kind of thing that separates us from the world. It's years of learning how to find healing from those hurts that enabled us to forgive our attackers. We learn that forgiveness is the door to healing. A broken heart. I would simply amend that last statement to say, healing, forgiveness is the door to healing a broken heart, broken relationship, broken family, a broken church. Forgiveness. And where does forgiveness come from? Well, forgiveness comes from Christ, our Savior. Let's pray, and the worship team will lead us in a couple of closing songs. Jesus, thank you for a love that never fails. Thank you for a love that endures forever. The love endures forever because you are forever. You are eternal. You have your plans and your purposes. 
And Lord, by your grace, you've invited us to be a part of those purposes. Father, I pause right now, and if there's anyone in this room this morning who just don't have that confidence that Jesus is their Savior, that they are in right standing before God only because of him, that, Lord, they would see the picture that we have painted this morning, that you are the only one who can bring us into the presence of our Creator, our Maker, the one who has given us life and breath. You are the only one who can bring us into the presence of God so that we can find life, so that we can be set free from the fear of death, so that we can be freed of guilt and sin and shame. Because you bore our guilt. You were shamed horrifically on the cross and on the way to the cross. And you rose from the dead. So we believe, Father, that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved. So, Father, if anyone here this morning is ready to... Take that step of confidence. Confidence not in themselves, but confidence in you. Confidence in your mercy, your compassion, your love for them. May they take that step in prayer, even as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Edwin.